0: Welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guess from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Dowdy, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh, and I do a thing in the city. It's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, and what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That's what these series of podcasts are all about is I'm trying to give Scottish history the -the Montebank treatment, so hopefully as you listen to this episode you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's episode is about the War of the Three Kingdoms. Um, When civil war broke out in England in 1642, both the English parliamentarians and the royalists petitioned the Scots covenanters for their support. The covenanters had easily defeated the royalist forces of Charles I in the Bishop Wars of 1639 and 1640. They may have been miserable bastards, but they were also very successful. They were like Andy Murray in that respect. The Covenanters had the strongest army across the three kingdoms, and whomever they supported would tip the balance in their favour, but for many in Scotland, the ultra-Presbyterianism of the Covenanters and their extreme political policies went too far. When the Covenanters committed to fight on the side of of the parliamentarians, The moderates wanted instead to join the war on the royalist side of Charles I, and so the English Civil War had officially reached Scotland, and Scots, they had a decision to make, support ultra-Presbyterianism or support the monarchy. It was Sophie's choice for Rangers supporters. Now listen, if this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a podcast that is mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of Tory bashing and some jobby jokes as well. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to The Star? All of the podcasts go in chronological order. They all give a bit of background into the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so if you want to jump in at Mary Queen of Scots or William Wallace... You can do that. Basically, go through the back catalogue if this is the first time you're listening. That's what I suggest. Right, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about the War of the Three Kingdoms. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there. And I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! In last week's podcast, I talked about the ease with which the Scots Presbyterian Covenanters had defeated Charles I in the Bishop Wars of 1639 and 1640. They had seen off Charles even more easily than they did Neil Lennon. They took Newcastle after the Battle of Newburn in August 1640 and occupied Newcastle and Northumberland until August 1641 only agreeing to leave after receiving a huge sum of £300,000 from the English Parliament. It's not uncommon for Scots to be paid to leave Newcastle. You know, I've been on that stag dude The Covenanting army was then scaled down but not entirely disbanded. In 1641 the Presbyterians were scaled down, not disbanded. In 2012 they were liquidated, alright, as much as they might try and tell you they were just scaled down and not disbanded. The English Parliament sponsored Covenanting intervention to protect Protestant plantations in Ulster in the north of Ireland after a Catholic rebellion broke out in 1641. The Covenanting army was a well-trained, centrally-funded professional army of mental fucking Protestants. It was like arming an orange walk, you know. At least it would be if they weren't all 20 stone plus and on mobility scooters. Such was the strength of the covenanting army that at the outbreak of the English Civil War, both parliamentarians and royalists petitioned the covenanters for their support. And it was this centrally funded and professional covenanting army that Oliver Cromwell would model his new model army on in 1645. Charles had ruled in England for 11 years without a parliament, a period remembered as the 11-year tyranny. The 11-year tyranny, it lasted from 2010 until 2021. Uh, actually, sorry, I'm, I'm getting mixed up here. That's the, uh, that's the 11-year Tory tyranny. Uh, Charles, he ruled from 1629 to 1640 without a parliament. And in 1640, after his calamitous religious reforms in Scotland provoked a rebellion, Charles needed the support of the parliament to raise money to put an army in the field to fight the Covenanters. In April 1640 he convened a parliament but disbanded it after only three weeks when he didn't get the support he required. This brief meeting of the parliament is remembered as the short parliament since it lasted about the same length of time Sam Allardyce did as the England manager. Now that the Bishop Wars were over and Charles was defeated he once again needed money, this time to raise funds to pay off the Covenanters and to deal with the rebellion in Ireland. So, Charles called a parliament on the 3rd of November 1640, but this was a parliament he was unable to control. English parliamentarians took measures to ensure the parliament couldn't be disbanded. Basically the opposite of what the Tories did when they tried to illegally proligate parliament. And this mean of the parliament is remembered as the Long Parliament. The English Parliament was led by two leading Puritans, John Pym and John Hampden. Now, the Puritans, like the Covenanters, resented Charles's attempts at religious uniformity across the kingdoms based on the pageantry of the Anglican Church, which they saw as the thin edge of popery. suspicions that weren't helped by Charles having a Catholic queen, Henrietta Maria, who did nothing to curtail her Catholicism when she became Queen Consort. The Parliament was also unhappy with Charles's misuse of the English ship laws. The ship laws were medieval English laws that allowed coastal towns to levy taxes for shipbuilding. Charles extended the ship laws to inland counties and was quite clearly not using the money for shipbuilding. Pym and Handon protested the King's scandalous means of raising money through stuff like ship laws without having to call Parliament and they wanted the King's closest advisors Thomas Wentworth and William Laud impeached. Thomas Wentworth was the Lord Deputy in Ireland, and William Laud was Archbishop of Canterbury, the man behind Charles's disastrous religious policies. Wentworth was heavily influenced by Laud, and his policies in Ireland were similar to that of Scotland. Wentworth was instructed to civilise the Irish, because you know what? The Irish are a very uncivilised people, you know, unlike the Brits. Because when I think of Ireland, I always consider the northern British-controlled part of the island to be the most civilised, you know? Wentworth tried to increase royal control in Ireland by extending the Protestant plantations and by instilling religious uniformity across Ireland in line with the English Anglican Church. These were policies that were unpopular with both the Catholic and Protestant ruling elites in Ireland and led to the 1641 Irish Rebellion. Now, it is rare that you get Catholics and Protestants coming together to universally loathe someone. Only Charles I and Boris Johnson are capable of it. I mean, when was Charles going to learn that nobody wanted his shitty, shitty Anglicanism? You can't honestly expect the people of Ireland... To watch the Vicar of Dibley instead of Father Ted. I mean, honestly me, come on. The Puritan parliamentarians wanted to ensure that Charles could not dissolve parliament again without the parliament's consent. They called for the Church of England to be stripped of all traces of popery, for bishops and royal officials to be removed from office, and for the right to veto any crown appointments to key positions. They gathered all of their grievances against Charles and presented them to the Parliament in the grand remonstrance of November 1641. Charles had over 200 complaints against him, about the same as Alex Salmond. Although I mean 200 grievances is fuck all though, isn't it? I mean my god, these days the Tories get through about 200 grievances a day. This was all too much for Charles to take. He charged five of the most prominent high profile members of Parliament with treason, Including Pym and Hamden. On the 4th of January 1642. He descended on Parliament with a force of 400 swordsmen. To arrest these high profile parliamentarians. But they had been tipped off and they weren't present. Charles burst into Parliament. And demanded that the Speaker point out the men. And who the leader of the Liberal Democrats was. There was roars of laughter in the House. As the Speaker replied. Are you kidding me? Nobody knows who the leader of the Liberal Democrats is. Charles tried to pick the Puritan leaders out himself, unaware that they weren't there. He famously said, all of my birds have flown, which is what Boris Johnson says when he ejaculates, or if you ask him about his children. Charles was laughed at and heckled as he left the parliament completely humiliated. Now, the only way that he could impose his will in parliament would be through military action. Charles had no civil service, no judiciary, no army and no money but all wasn't lost you know because he still had his nuclear weapons. The extreme nature of the Puritan parliamentarians it led to a, a counter-cavalier movement. Now, the parliamentarians, they would become known as roundheads because of their tight-fitting helmets and the pudding bowl haircuts of the soldiers drawn from the London mobs John Pym had riled into action. Pym was head of the roundhead movement. It's a bit like how Boris Johnson is head of the dickhead movement, you know? The cavaliers were in stark contrast to the roundheads. Most had long flowing hair and wore extravagant wide-brimmed hats with feathers in them. Boris Johnson is kind of like a cross between a roundhead and a cavalier. You know, he's a posh, flouncy prick with a pudding bowl haircut. For many, particularly those who came from substance, the demands set out in the great remonstrance went too far and the parliamentarians' disregard for the king was too extreme. The parliamentarians They wanted too much power. The Levellers, for example, was a movement calling for universal suffrage for adult males and universal male suffrage was almost as unthinkable in 17th century England as having a prime minister that didn't go to Eton is in 21st century Britain. As support for Charles Grew, he raised his standard on the 22nd of August 1642 at Nottingham. The English Civil War had begun, but it was a rebellion not against the King, but by the King against England's de facto government. The Cavaliers edged victory in the first battle of the Civil War at Edgehill in Oxfordshire in October 1642. The parliamentarians, they were in trouble until they won the Battle of Newbury in Berkshire in September 1643, which proved to be a turning point in the war. A few weeks after the parliamentarian victory at Newbury, they were reinforced by a 20,000 strong covenanting army. Now, with Covenanting's support, the Parliamentarians were able to defeat the Royalists in the largest and bloodiest battle of the Civil War at Marston Moor, west of York, on the 2nd of July 1644. The defeat meant that the Royalists had effectively lost the north of England, where their support was the strongest. The man who commanded the Parliamentary Cavalry at Marston Moor was Member of Parliament and Lieutenant General Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell being very much the Prick's prick. After the important victory at Marston Moor, Cromwell argued the parliamentarians required a new professional, centrally funded, standing national army. Fuck the NHS and their pay rise. Parliament agreed and the new model army was conceived. The new model army won its first victory on the 14th of June 1645 at Naseby in Northamptonshire. The decisive parliamentary victory at Naseby marked the end of any meaningful resistance from the Royalists. Charles clung on for the winter of 1645 in Oxford, watching as his royalist cause disintegrated around him when his grandson exposed horrendous racism in the family and his son was, uh, was outed as a sex offender paedophile. Actually, do you know what? Sorry, I'm getting uh, I'm getting my British royal families mixed up there. Charles's heir, Prince Charles, was able to escape to Sicily and his Queen Henrietta Maria fled to France where she wrote constantly to her husband from the Palace of Saint-Germain. But Henrietta Maria would never see her husband again. It's what tends to happen when royal spouses go to Paris, you know. Charles was defeated and decided to surrender himself not to the English parliamentarians, but to the Scots covenanters. He was hoping for an EU passport in an independent Scotland. Disguised as a servant, Charles slipped out of Oxford on the 27th of April 1646 and made for Newark-on-Trent in Nottinghamshire, where the Covenanting army was encamped and besieging the town. On the 5th of May 1646, Charles surrendered in person to the astonished Covenanting commander Alexander Leslie, and like Trump, Charles at least had the balls to turn up at his surrender. Charles' surrender to the Covenanters was a tactical ploy. He hoped to play the Covenanters and the Parliamentarians off against each other and exploit the differences and bitterness that was developing between them. When Civil War broke out in England in 1642, a split had occurred amongst the Covenanters in Scotland. There were those who felt that the Covenant hadn't gone far enough. These were ultra-Presbyterian Covenanters who wanted to create a godly state in Scotland, a theocracy whereby they would rule by the word of God. They didn't recognise the authority of the King, only God could tell them what to do, and they wanted to support the Puritan parliamentarians in England. Then there was those who were concerned by these radical political and religious views. The moderates were happy to see the arbitrary powers of the king curbed, but they were against the removal of the king altogether. Your choice was either support ultra-Presbyterianism or support the monarchy, although it could be worse. You know, you could be ruled by extremely religious royalists, like Jacob Rees-Mogg. And we have a plague. 21st century Britain is just like 17th century Britain. The men who headed up each of these differing factions, their rivalry would dominate Scotland in the 1640s. Archibald Campbell, the Marquis of Argyll, and James Graham, the Marquis although at that time he was still Earl of Montrose. These two men differed politically and personally. Argyll was austere, dour moralist, and Montrose was swashbuckling, dashing, and charismatic. In August 1640, Montrose called a meeting at Cumberland House in Dumbartonshire where some of the country's most prominent nobles signed the Cumberland Bond, pledging their support to King Charles I. When Argyll heard about the signing of the Cumberland Bond, he wanted those who signed it to be charged with treason. It was Argyll and the hardline Presbyterians who held the reins of government, and when Charles visited Scotland in the aftermath of the Bishop Wars in 1641, Argyll had had Montrose locked up in Edinburgh Castle to prevent him from making any covert dealings with the King. When both the Royalists and Parliamentarians reached out for Scottish support at the end of 1642, opinion was divided. The Privy Council voted that only Charles's appeal could be considered, but the General Assembly, the elected heads of the Presbyterian Kirk, they were having none of it. Charles he refused to allow a meeting of the full Parliament in Scotland for fear that they would vote to support the English parliamentarians. He stopped the Parliament from meeting because he knew that they wouldn't vote for what he wanted. That's why Boris Johnson continues to deny Scotland an independence referendum. In June 1643, a convention, not a Parliament was led by Argyll and held in Edinburgh and it voted to ignore Charles' request for support. And then, a meeting of the General Assembly held in early August 1643 endorsed the decisions of the June Convention and pledged Scottish covenanting support to the English parliamentarians. In February 1644, 18,000 covenanting soldiers and 3,000 cavalry crossed the border into England to join the parliamentary forces. Their support turned the tide of the war. At the decisive battle of Marston Moor in July 1644, it was the Covenanting Cavalry under the command of Major General David Leslie, nephew of the famous Covenanting Commander Alexander Leslie, that turned the tide in the favour of the parliamentarians. The Scots Covenanters only committed to military intervention once the English parliamentarians accepted the terms of a religious treaty and military pact, the Solemn League and Covenant. The Solemn League being the league that Rangers were relegated to back in 2012. The Solemn League and Covenant pledged military support in exchange for religious uniformity across the three kingdoms. For covenanting support, the English Parliament would have to agree to establish Presbyterianism in England and Ireland. The Covenanters wanted a unified Presbyterian Church across all of Britain and Ireland, exactly what Charles had been trying to do with Anglicanism. It was as hypocritical as when the Tories demand Nicola Sturgeon be removed for allegedly misleading Parliament when their own leader misleads Parliament more often than he attends Cobra meetings. The Solemn League and Covenant was presented to English commissioners on the 17th of August 1643. They accepted the military part, but the religious stipulations were harder to agree. It's like trying to sell a scripture union holiday at a school assembly. Like, aye, the, the windsurfing sounds great, but the religious shite I'm less into. But many in England despised Presbytery as much as they did episcopy. An assembly was called at Westminster where parliamentarians discussed unifying church government, worship and doctrines across the three kingdoms. And after some time they created the Westminster Confession of Faith, which accepted a form of Presbyterian practice across churches in England. The English government agreed to sign a modified version of the Solemn League and Covenant and pledged to accept church unification and Presbyterianism across the kingdoms. But many, including Montrose, thought that the English were using the Scots' Presbyterian crusade for their own ends. Because, of course, no one pays attention to Westminster confessions. You know, like the Prime Minister can say that he wants to see thousands of bodies piled high in the street and nobody gives a fuck. All the parliamentarians wanted was to keep the Covenanters on their side at all costs. They were just using Scotland for their own ends. And this was before we even had oil. When Charles surrendered himself to the Covenanters at Newark in May 1646, He was trying to exploit the differences between the Covenanters and Parliamentarians who were stalling over the religious settlement set out in the National League and Covenant. The Parliamentarians were showing no signs of fulfilling their end of the bargain and there was growing disillusionment and bitterness between the two sides. Charles surrendered to the Covenanters because he hoped that he could win them over and convince them to fight against the Parliamentarians. The Covenanters, they were delighted to have the King in their possession, this was a huge trump card and bargaining chip that they could use to ensure their political and religious demands were met. They called off the siege of Newark and withdrew to Newcastle with Charles, Newcastle being the ideal place for an incompetent leader used to defeat. The parliamentarians were furious, in their eyes the Covenanters were making underhand deals with the King, which was ironic considering they themselves were making underhand deals with Serco and Saitel. Charles, for his part, was, regardless of his imprisonment, completely unwilling to make any concessions to the National Covenant or Solemn League. With Charles unwilling to bend to their demands and the parliamentarians threatening military action if they did not leave English soil immediately, mad to think, isn't it, there was a time when English parliamentarians insisted the Scots leave and now they're demanding that we have to stay. The Covenanters, they were in a predicament. Either they surrender the most prized prisoner to the parliamentarians or they return to Scotland with Charles where his presence would surely breathe life into the Scottish royalist movement. The Marquis of Montrose had led a brilliant royalist campaign in Scotland against at times impossible odds. But by the time of Charles's surrender in 1646, the Royalists in Scotland had been defeated and Montrose was still at large, attempting to keep the Royalist resistance going. Charles turning up in Scotland would be just the catalyst that he needed. The Covenanters made their decision in January 1647. On the 30th of January, they marched out of Newcastle, leaving the King behind in English captivity. Charles was handed over to the parliamentarians and the Covenanters were paid £200,000 for their, inverted commas, contribution towards the civil war in England. They sold out the monarch for £200,000, about the same as Harry and Meghan got from Oprah to sell out the monarch. It was a deal that would taint the reputation of the Covenanters' legacy. They had sold a king from a Scottish royal dynasty to Scotland's age-old enemies. Regardless of how unpopular Charles was, it was a deeply unpatriotic thing to do. Their reputation in Scotland, it was ruined after they sold out to those running the Westminster Parliament. The Covenanters, they were the Labour Party of their time. There were splits amongst the English parliamentarians as well, between those who supported English Presbyterianism and wanted the implication of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Puritan, Independents, who wanted an independent church free of episcopy and presbytery. The Independents, I mean, they were even bigger nutcases than the Presbyterians, but most of them would fuck off to America, which became a kind of like a a, a mecca for Protestant maniacs. The English Presbyterians, they wanted to dismantle the new model army which was becoming incredibly powerful under the control of Oliver Cromwell. Charles, he was being kept prisoner in the comfortable surroundings of Holdenby House in Northamptonshire by the English Presbyterians. But in June 1647, a group of soldiers from the New Model Army snatched Charles and took him south to Hamden Court. Charles, he actually escaped his captors at Hamden Court. He was the first person to ever make it out of the maze there. But he had little support in London in the southeast. nowhere was safe in England, the R number was about a million and no one was willing to house or support him. Unable to get a ship that would take him to France and his wife Henrietta Maria, Charles instead made for the Isle of Wight where he hoped that the island's governor Colonel Hammond would be sympathetic to his cause. He wasn't and Charles was imprisoned at Carisbrooke Castle on the Isle of Wight for the next 18 months. The rise of the dictatorial Oliver Cromwell and the new model army in England was causing concern in Scotland and yet again there was a split between those who wanted to work with Cromwell and those who opposed him. This time it was the more moderate Presbyterians who controlled the Parliament and they wanted to make a stand against Cromwell. The moderates entered secret negotiations with Charles from his prison on the Isle of Wight. The negotiations led to an agreement being reached in December 1647 known as the Engagement Those moderate Scottish Presbyterians who reached the agreement with Charles became known as the Engagers. The Engagers agreed to work with royal sympathisers in England to launch a rebellion, suppress the independence and return Charles to power. Once Charles was returned to power, he would instill Presbyterianism in England for a trial period of three years. But like a hallow fresh trial, few expected it to last. If Charles was already unpopular in England, just wait until he introduced Presbyterianism. He'd reach a Morrissey level of unpopularity. The Marcus of Argyll, he headed up the ultra-Presbyterian Kirk Party in opposition to the Engagers, and he was vehemently opposed to any negotiations with the king. Most of the Covenantine army had been disbanded after their return to Scotland in January 1647, and there was a, a struggle to raise an engager army. An ill equipped and poorly trained engager army marched into England on the 8th of July 1648. They were ill disciplined and poorly trained, but went to another country anyway. It was like this season's Celtic side. They expected to be joined by Royalist forces from Wales and the south of England, but the Welsh and English forces had been crushed by Cromwell and his unstoppable Ironside Cavalry. The Engager army faced off against Cromwell's new model army at Preston, and over two days on the 17th and 18th of August 1648, the Engager army was completely destroyed. Over 2,000 were killed and 8,000 captured at Preston. After the humiliation of the defeat at Preston, the engagement party were completely discredited in Scotland. In the aftermath of the engager defeat there was a rebellion. A group of two thousand radical Covenanters from the southwest of Scotland known as the Wigamores marched on the capital and seized power in sixteen forty eight, in August of sixteen forty eight, sorry. The engagement party was ousted and the more radical Presbyterian Kirk party headed by the Marquess of Argyll became the ruling party. It was these radicals who first introduced twenty mile an hour speed limits to Edinburgh. The short-lived reign of the Whigamores from 1648 to 1650 would become known as the Rule of Saints, an utterly bizarre period of Scottish history where St Johnston were League Cup winners and could quite conceivably do the double and be Scottish Cup winners as well, never to be seen again. These religious fanatics barred the ungodly from prominent positions of power. They insisted on direct management of the army, from which they purged some of their most experienced and capable soldiers for being ungodly. Their system was like that tree in the fat sketch. Wank, wank, godly, wank, godly, wank. They purged the ungodly, but somehow Prince Andrew, he clung on in there as he always does. The Wigamores, the executed dissidents and opponents and policy was dictated to the parliament directly from the General Assembly. The kirk was incredibly powerful, was made responsible for the poor and the sick, church attendance was made compulsory, every parish was required to have a school, merchants were banned from trading with Catholic countries and there was a resurgence in witch hunting. They trusted completely in God, political leaders had direct control of the army, dissidents were purged, Catholic countries were vilified and folk kept rabbiting on about a so-called witch hunt. Scotland in 1648 was just like America in 2020. The Whigamores hoped to come to an understanding with Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell, he was certainly as devout a Protestant as they were, but it's hard to put a pin on what form of religion Cromwell practised. He was against Catholicism and high Anglicanism, but also against Presbyterianism. As an independent, he advocated an independent English church with the right to organise its own affairs. But, I mean, mostly he just loved killing Catholics, Irish Catholics in particular. He was like Winston Churchill or Margaret Thatcher in that respect. Cromwell, he visited Scotland to meet with the Wigamores in October 1648. He insisted the Scottish Parliament should ban any engagers or royalists from holding public office or attending Parliament, and he advocated further purges of the army. When Cromwell left, he left three regiments of new model army in place to protect the Kirk party... And another to protect statues. In December 1648, a regiment of new model army soldiers entered the House of Commons and expelled 140 of the less radical MPs and shut down the House of Lords. The raid on Westminster in December 1648 is remembered as the Pride's Purge, as it was carried out by one of the veteran soldiers of the new model army, Colonel Thomas Pride. Now, only 60 hardline Puritan MPs remained in the House of Commons, or UKIP, as they would become known. That is, of course, a joke. It is obviously ridiculous to suggest that UKIP could ever get a seat in the House of Commons. It was these hardline Puritan MPs who voted to execute Charles I for treason. When news reached Scotland of their decision, there were furious protests. The Scots were incensed that the decision to execute Charles had been reached without the agreement or consent of the Scottish Parliament. If Cromwell was insistent on cutting off the head of England's monarch, he couldn't do so without also executing Scotland's monarch. Charles may have been a prick, but I mean, regicide, public execution, it was just going too far. Charles was like the Alex Salmond of the 17th century. The Scots, they had to decide on their next move, should they declare Charles's heir, Prince Charles, King Charles II of Scotland, I mean it was unlikely Cromwell would tolerate a monarchy in Scotland, especially the son of the king that he intended to execute. Regardless of the Scottish protests, Charles was charged in January 1649 as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, a public implacable enemy to the Commonwealth of England. England was determined to press on and behead the king regardless of what Scotland thought. Charles's beheading was very much the Brexit of its time. The eloquence and dignity of Charles' defence impressed the court, but nonetheless, his trial was a foregone conclusion. On the 30th of January 1649, Charles was beheaded on a scaffold erected outside of the Palace of Whitehall. Charles, he wore an extra shirt so not to shiver and give the impression that he was scared. Boris Johnson also wears an extra shirt to prevent shivering at the back of the fridge. It took the executioner one swing of the axe to remove Charles's head. A terrible groan came from the crowd as he did so. Charles's behaviour during his trial and execution gained royal sympathisers. Those who were previously opposed to the king were now sympathetic to the royalist cause and opposed the extremism of Cromwell. The execution of the king had not had the desired effect that Cromwell had hoped for. England had now gone and beheaded another Scottish monarch. Charles had gone the same way as his grandmother, Queen Mary, and I'll likely go the same way that my granny went as well, you know, by drinking myself to death. And you know what, since they got to execute two of our monarchs, I think it's only fair that we get to execute at least one of theirs, or at the very least we should get to boot Prince Andrew in the Boz. A few weeks after Charles' execution, the monarchy was formally abolished by the English Parliament and a republic, the Commonwealth of England, was declared. In Scotland, on the 5th of February 1649, the Lord Chancellor, Earl of Loudoun, declared Charles' son, the 18-year-old Prince Charles, King Charles II of Great Britain, France and Ireland at the Mercat Cross in Edinburgh. The English had beheaded Charles I and replaced him with a tyrannical dictator, Oliver Cromwell, who was king in all but name only. So, in Scotland, we declared Charles's son king just to be different and to piss off England. It would be like if we were to declare Prince Harry king these days, which I'd be up for, you know, as long as we could replace him with Queen Susan Boyle when Scotland becomes independent. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that each week on the podcast, what I do is I match what I've been talking about with a malt whiskey from Scotland, and then I try and send someone who deserves it a bottle of that whiskey. It could be like a, a frontline worker, an NHS staff member, a teacher, a patient parent. It can be absolutely anyone. Um, basically, anyone who you think deserves a bottle of whiskey, you can nominate them to receive a bottle of whiskey and uh, give them a nice surprise. I'll tell you how to do that in just a second. The way in which I raise money to send people bottles of whiskey is through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts. So if you have enjoyed the episode and you were to meet me in real life and you were like, do you know what, Danny, I'd buy you a pint. And buy you a cup of coffee. Well, you can do that. You just go on to buy me a coffee forward slash Montabank and leave me the equivalent of the price of a cup of coffee. It all goes towards raising money to send people bottles of whiskey. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might want to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can do that at patreon.com, whereby you basically just give me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month. It's massively, massively appreciated, and it helps me put a smile on deserving people's faces. Uh, today's Whiskey that I'm going to match with the podcast is Bladenech, which is the suddenly most situated distillery in Scotland. Uh, it's probably the best of the lowland malts. It's sweet, it's delicate, it's floral. Their signature 11-year-old is uh, an excellent, excellent malt. And the reason I've chosen Bladenech is because it's in the, the southwest of Scotland. It's in that Wigamore heartland. So the distillery actually is located in Wigtown, I think. Um, so it's in the heartland of where the, the Wigamores are launched their rebellion after the failure of the Engagers. So where those extreme Presbyterians came from at that very unique time in Scottish history. So if you'd like to... Send someone a bottle of uh, Bladenech. You'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle. Basically, all you need to do is go and buy me a coffee. When you leave me the equivalent of the price of coffee, you can leave a wee comment underneath it, Um, or you can send me a DM on social media. I'm uh, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Montebank Scotland, or you can send me an email. And basically, I just choose someone at random. That's how it works. Um, if you listen to the podcast and you enjoyed it, please like the podcast, rate the podcast, share it, give it a review if you can. I know I ask every week, but it really, really does help massively put me up the rankings and keep me ahead of Neil Oliver, which is what we all want. Uh, give me a wee follow on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Scotland, And check out my YouTube channel as well, um, The Mon- Montebank History of Scotland. That's my channel and I think that's it. I don't have anything else that I need to ask you to do. Thank you so, so much for listening, and I shall see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.